you have uh, your, your uh, copy of God's Word, uh, whether it be electronic or paper form, uh, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read this. This is one to put away, um, mark in your Bible, maybe make a, a note somewhere where you keep notes of when you need hope, when you need, uh, especially when really tough times hit, and you want to know that there is a bigger plan, that God is in charge, um, something bigger is happening. This is just a magnificent passage for it. So let me read it for us and, and then we'll dive in together. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to, build, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray together. Father, as we take a look at Your Word, Your Word penned many centuries ago, we ask for help. I pray, Father, that You, by Your Spirit, would allow Your Word to show us together the amazing nature of Christian hope. I pray that uh, as Christians this morning, we will see how unique Christian hope is in that it is centered on Jesus 
Christ. I pray that You would use it to give hope to Your people. I pray that You would help us to better understand hope. Father, we pray that You would use this in the lives of Your people for Your kingdom's sake. We ask all these things to You, Father, through the strong name of the One who brings us hope, Jesus Christ, that Your Spirit would work. Amen. I've titled the message, The Unique Nature of Christian Hope. Unique Nature of Christian Hope. In 1844, in an introduction to one of his books, German thinker Karl Marx penned these words. By the way, if you ever see a sermon handout and the first part is a quotation from Karl Marx, get scared. Um, we're only, I gave you the full quote because it's very interesting. I thought over lunch you would want to go back through it, but I'm only going to hit a part of it. I've underlined the part. Man makes religion, says Marx. Religion does not make man. Religion is the general theory of this world. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It, speaking of religion, is the opium of the people. Well, you might not be familiar with that quote. I can assure you that you are familiar with this way of thinking about religion. Marx argues that religion serves as a pain medicine for coping with the sufferings of this world. Religion is not real, he says. It's created by people in order to help them cope. Whether or not many in our culture want to admit it, this is what they actually believe about religion. They believe that religion simply serves to offer help to get through life. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter so long as it works. They would say religion offers hope. And like there are various brands of pain medicine on the market, so there are various types of religion on the market. But all have the same goal, to offer hope, and none of them are really true or false. As Christians, we believe that this way of thinking is false. We reject Marx's idea that Christianity is created by man. But like any wrong claim that is able to gain traction, it does so only by attaching to something true. Marx is correct that religion, and in particular Christianity, serves as hope and serves as a way to deal with pain and suffering. Marx is also correct that there are many other religions that all they really are is, an, is a way for people to cope. But I want, as we turn our attention to Isaiah 61 this morning, it is my prayer and hope that you will see demonstrated by this text the superior nature of Christian hope. It's a hope unique from every other religion, every other world view. So giving different distinctions. First, I want us to see through this passage, Christian hope is for the hopeless. Christian hope is for the hopeless. 
In Isaiah 61, we see the, the message of hope. It's not a general message, but it has a specific audience. The message is specifically directed to these type of folks. Those who are poor. Those who are desperate. Those who are unsettled. Those who are broken. I've underlined this throughout those passages. Verse 1 says that God aims the message of good news to those who are poor, brokenhearted, captive, and bound. In verses 2 and 3, it describes the recipients of hope as those who are currently mourning, sitting in ashes, faint in spirit. Verse 4 describes their conditions as ruined, devastated. That is exactly what we find all across the pages of Scripture. God brings hope to the hopeless. Christianity is not a religion for the strong and the upright, the put together and perfect, the fixed and the unflappable. No, Christianity at its core is news of hope to those who are hopeless. So we shall see later, this is a hopelessness not because of foul circumstances or lack of material means. It is a hopelessness brought on because of the effects of sin. Christianity lands as news on the news of hope for those who feel poor, not because they lack money or status, but because they lack the ability to obey God's perfect and good law. Christianity is for those who are broken over their sinfulness, unsettled over their inability to change themselves. Christianity is for those who, aside from the good news of it, would understand themselves as imprisoned by the guilt of sin and captive to the ways of the world. So it's not a message. Make sure you understand this about Christian hope. It is not a generic message, but it it's not a message that just encourages people just do what you can to get through. It's a message of hope that lands on only those who are broken. John Calvin writes it this way. He says, It's a message of hope promised to none but those who have been humbled and overwhelmed by conviction of their distresses, who have no lofty pretensions, but they keep themselves humbled and modest. Friends, if this is the audience for Christian hope, those who are poor and needy, do we find ourselves among that audience? This is an important question. This is a very hard message for our culture to accept. The average person in our culture is very fine with the idea of personal improvement. He or she will openly admit that, thing, that they are far from being perfect. But few want to stoop to the level of brokenness described by Isaiah 61. Few want to admit poor, broken-hearted, captive, bound, mourning, and devastated. So let me ask, are we willing to describe ourselves, to see ourselves in these ways? Are we willing to diagnose, diagnose ourselves as poor, broken over our sin? Are we ready to call ourselves devastated 
and helpless. I pray that we are. Because only then can you hear the message of Christian hope. So Christian hope is for the hopeless. Christian hope changes circumstances by transforming people. Christian hope changes circumstances by transforming people. One of the interesting characteristics of the passage is the language it uses about transformation. At the center of Christian hope is the idea of change. Notice the language of change throughout the passage. A couple examples. Look in verse 1. We see the brokenhearted are healed. The captives are set free. In verse 3, a beautiful headdress is given instead of ashes. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. In verse 4, there's a building up of ruins. A raising of devastation. These are not small changes. These aren't simple minor tweaks. Ask the prisoner who's been set free. Was that a major change or not? Ask the person who is now glad who is mourning. Is that a major change or not? Look at the building where there used to be ruins. These represent major change. But change in and of itself is not the whole story. This passage goes on to demonstrate something incredibly unique about Christian hope. Listen carefully. When most people talk about hope, they speak of changing circumstances, and then they go on to say that if these circumstances change, then people's lives will be transformed. People will be transformed. Let me give you some examples. Perhaps someone promises that if a nation will just start paying attention to the little guy again, then the little guy can go from being downcast and now live with some ambition and desire. Change these circumstances and you'll transform the person. Or perhaps a religious group promises that if you begin following their religion, it will bring good luck and good fortune that will allow a person to be a happier person. Change these circumstances and you'll transform this life. Or perhaps a politician promises to return a nation to their glory days so that people will no longer have to be so forlorn. Change these circumstances and you transform a life. Notice all of these follow the same logical order. First change circumstances and then transform lives. But with Christian hope, it's the opposite. God first transforms His people and only then does He transform their circumstances. This is seen clearest in verses 7 through 11, but especially look in verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Here we see the focus of change accompanying Christian hope. It's the transformation from sin and shame to no sin and no shame. Notice that the recipient of this change goes from shame to double honor, to everlasting joy. 
Verse 10 goes so far as to say the believer will be clothed with garments. This sort of transformation is a key part of the Christian worldview and it's necessary for understanding the passage. It's stated in the first point. The hope being offered is given to hopeless sinners. So therefore, it stands to reason that if you're going to go from hopeless to full of hope, something has to do that. So we have hopeless sinners who are going to become hopeful righteous. How? (laughs) How does one go from being a hopeless sinner to a hopeful righteous person? In here lies the distinctly Christian answer. Every other worldview, I mean, every other worldview solves this problem by having the hopeless sinner change his or her circumstances in order that he might become a righteous person. This may be going to the temple. It may be praying to Mecca multiple times a day. Could be helping the poor. Could be going to confession, giving an offering or something similar. But in all of these examples, the sinner is changing their circumstances in order to become right, to become transformed. But this is not Christianity. Look at verse 10. Listen to who gets credit for the change. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, and my soul shall exult in my God. Why give credit to God? The verse continues, For He, that's God, has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. Credit is given to God because God brings salvation. And how that happens in verse 10, we're going to see a little bit more in a few moments. So God is the one who rescues the hopeless sinner from sin and hopelessness. We don't work up the desire to be different or the willpower to do the right thing. God in His mercy radically plucks us out of hopelessness and offers us salvation. Verse 11 makes this point particularly clear. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause. Did you hear that? So the Lord will what? Cause righteousness and praise to sprout before all the nations. There is a change in the people of God. There is a transformation and it happens because God causes it to happen. He grows righteousness in the lives of His people. So all the change in circumstances for the Christian, such as beauty for ashes or gladness for mourning, those come as a result of God's prior work to transform the hopeless sinner. Christian hope is for the hopeless. Christian hope changes circumstances by transforming people, in particular sinners. Third, Christian hope majors on the not yet and minors on the already. Don't forget the context of this passage. This passage is written about a hundred years before, a hundred years before the nation of Israel would lose their temple, their land, 
and their nation. Most of the people would either be killed or carried off into exile to Babylon. It was a tremendous tragedy for God's people. So God uses the prophet Isaiah to prepare the people for this moment. So you got it. Here's where he's writing. A hundred years later, horrible tragedies coming. And God is using this moment right now to prepare them for hope. Got that? But given the fact that the nation will be utterly destroyed in just a century's time, the hope Isaiah offers, it seems pretty strange as a way to go about it. I mean, look at verse 4 and 5. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. So here God is promising the raising of ruins, the building up of destroyed places. He goes so far as to say foreigners will be working for you in the land. All the while, in just short order, God is going to allow their homes to be ruined, their temple to be devastated, and strangers to take them off to work for strangers in a foreign land. So is God deceiving them? If you don't understand Christian hope, you might draw that conclusion. Christian hope does not major on the here and now. Or that which is already before us. Instead, Christian hope majors on the not yet. That which is still in the future. God wasn't deceiving His people. He eventually did keep His promise of raising His ruins when He brought them back from their exile. And He will more fully realize this when He brings a new heaven and a new earth. But for those people who lived their entire life, I mean, there's a hundred years there. It could easily have been many people. If you're one of those who lived your entire life during the time of that exile, that might feel like little consolation to you that you never experienced the benefits of God's promise of hope. They may feel as if God has forgotten them. This has to be one of the most misunderstood concepts. And quite honestly, for us as believers, one of the most frustrating components of the Christian life. While God majors on the not yet, the long view, we major on the already, the near view. This leads... To people to destroy, to distort Christianity, to make promises that following Jesus will bring quick riches and good health. This leads Christians to be frustrated with God that He's not solving their near view problem. Chronic disease, that's a real problem. A troubled marriage, an employment issue, a state of sadness or loneliness. Would this passage stand as a reminder to us that Christian hope does not focus on the already, but majors on the not yet? God will answer every one of our prayers. He will solve every one of our problems. 
but it will more than likely not be in the already. It will more than likely be in the not yet. It's not just mere timing. Not only will God fulfill all His promises in the future kingdom, He will answer our deepest longing in much grander ways than we could imagine. There's a whole lot to be said here. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to let C.S. Lewis say this a lot better than I ever could. He said this in The Weight of Glory. I think I gave you your quote on your handout. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires... Listen carefully. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But again, that only lands if you understand that Christian hope majors in the not yet. Christian hope is for the hopeless. Christian hope changes circumstances by transforming sinners. Christian hope majors on the not yet and minors on the already. Christian hope fully depends on one person, Jesus. Something quite interesting in Isaiah 61, if you study it from just, say, even a pure literature perspective, it's the fact that you get a change in the point of view. There's a mix of the first person, eyes, me's, and the second person, you, or in the south, y'all's, in third person, throughout them, they, throughout the passage. This ends up mattering quite a bit. In verse 1 and 2, the first person point of view is used as the chapter opens with these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Not he or him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. It's really not clear who the speaker is. Though one might assume it's Isaiah since he's the one writing. That would make sense. As Isaiah was appointed to bring good news from God, while it's not unheard of, the prophet Isaiah rarely uses first-person language though. So it's not the norm either. It seems like something else is going on. Well, something else was going on. And it gets a very, very clear answer in history. Very clearly and very boldly, it was answered on a Saturday morning in a synagogue in the town of Nazareth. There, a, a person who'd grown up there, a young man by the name of Jesus, gave his very first sermon. And as he stood up to give his very first sermon, they had different scrolls, and he asked for the scroll from the prophet of, you already know the answer, Isaiah. And he decided to turn to one text. Jesus of Nazareth's very first sermon, recorded for us in the book of Luke, verse 4, it's on your handout. 
Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unscrolled the scroll. Now this is not the scrolling that you do on your iPad or iPhone. It's a different type of scrolling. And he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's Isaiah 61, verse 1. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with joy, happiness, contentment, amazement, wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill of which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The very first sermon from the God of the universe to mankind. And what does mankind try to do? Literally throw him off a cliff. You tell me that we aren't fallen creatures. Jesus picks up Isaiah 61. He quotes the first five verses which happened to be, sorry, first verse and a half, which happened to be written in the first person. So just picture, Jesus is holding the scroll of Isaiah, he's standing before the people, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me. He rolls up the scroll, and he sits down, and everybody's wondering, if he could be actually trying to say what they think he might be actually trying to say. And Jesus begins to teach them. And what does he teach them? He begins to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. There in that little synagogue, in humble Nazareth, Jesus made the claim that all the promises of hope in Isaiah 61, promises made 700 years before, promises of hope for the hopeless, promise to transform the people of God, and promises that major on the not yet, all of that are fulfilled in Him. And this offers the most unique characteristic of Christian hope. Christian hope centers squarely on the person of Jesus, the Son of God. As He said there in Nazareth, He comes to bring good news. He is the one who can set free captives. He is the one who can bind up the brokenhearted. Moreover, it is Jesus in Isaiah 61.10. Again, we switch, I mean just rapid switch, awkward switch to the first person in Isaiah 61.10. It says, For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. 
700 years before Jesus was born, God explains how He will fulfill the promise of hope. How? He will cover Him with garments of salvation and with robes of righteousness. And as those folks in Nazareth looked on and saw Jesus standing there in His flesh, they saw the flesh that would be bloodied and pierced. They saw the garment of salvation the Father had put upon His Son. And as they beheld His mercy and compassion, they failed to realize that He was covered with the perfect righteousness given over only because He was God in the flesh. What does it mean? What does man do when he beholds the promises of God? Well, you saw what the people of Nazareth did. They tried to throw Him off a cliff. Why? They wanted nothing to do with the hope He offered. Why? They did not see themselves as hopeless. They did not see a need to be transformed. And they wanted an answer in the already forget the not yet. Friends, let me ask us, where do we stand with the words of God today? Do we see ourselves as hopeless do we see that more than our circumstances need changing, our hearts need transforming? Do we believe that we should be more concerned with the not yet than the already? And mostly, mostly, do we see Jesus not as an answer, but as the only answer? If Jesus would have never come as our rescuer, if all that matters is that, that which is in the already right before us, and if all that we really need changing is our circumstances, then Karl Marx is exactly right. Should all that be true, then all religion really needs to be for us is a pain pill to make this easier. But we believe that Jesus has come. We believe that He will come again. We believe that when He comes in an instant, everything will be changed into the glorious not yet. We believe that we who are hopeless, because He comes, will change our hearts. This is not an opium for the masses. This is a Savior for lost sinners. I invite you to respond to Jesus Christ this morning as He comes to us and says, I have come to bring good news to the broken. Let me pray for us.